on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the religious leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have also believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider your word this morning, we pray for insight and understanding on what you have for us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing in our series reflecting on the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. It was just two weeks ago that we gathered together in Central Park. We had a great time, uh, both early in the morning and later in uh, late morning, uh, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, since then, we've been reflecting on the implications of those events. And so today, we continue in that journey. What are the implications of the resurrection? You can get caught up in all of our Easter series at adventhope.org, and we take, hope you'll take advantage of uh, the messages that are listed there. Well, the narrative today comes again from that first day uh, of Jesus' resurrection. And so we're told in the evening that Jesus uh, uh, came and showed up, that his disciples were gathered together. They had the doors locked. They were in a room together. And uh, Jesus shows up, literally appears among them. And this is implying now that Jesus has gained a skill that he did not have before a uh, a form of transportation that he didn't have when he was limited by his humanity, that he can just come. The doors were locked, and yet he somehow is with them. And this is also reminiscent of the story that we find in uh, Luke, where earlier in the day, uh, two men, two disciples, had been traveling out of Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And uh, we're told that they were a little bummed because they had not yet heard of the resurrection. And so as they were walking and talking together about the events in Jerusalem, again, uh, Jesus showed up with them, walking side by side, and they didn't recognize him. And so they walked together. Their, their eyes were, were, were unable to recognize who he was. And so he walked and talked, and they were inspired by him. And finally, they came to a place where they sat down for a meal. And Jesus, as he blessed the bread, their, 
their eyes were opened and they could see that it was him and they were overjoyed. And then again, he disappeared. He disappeared from their sight. So those guys ran back, we're told, to tell the other disciples. And it's this scene in the evening. The guys have come back. The women have already been brought their testimony from the, the morning. And all the disciples are there except for one. And Jesus shows up even though the doors are locked. And so we see that Jesus had a pretty active uh, first day after the resurrection. He shows up to the disciples and he's engaged with them, and he comes and joins them together. But again, Thomas, one of the disciples, uh, wasn't there. I'd love to know the story of where Tom, Thomas was. Why was he, why was he uh, missing from this kind of profound event? Have you ever been to like uh, an event that was incredibly profound, and you just like completely missed out on things? This happened to me once here with, with our Avon Hope family. I went to a Mets Nationals game, Josue, uh, and with, with some of you here, and Lincoln, are you here? You remember this? Remember when we went to the Mets Nationals game, and we're watching the game, and uh, someone has the bright idea that we should get up and just wander around the stadium, and so like five of us start wandering around, around the stadium, and there are places where you can't hear things, and you're like, we start hearing cheering, and, and then we hear more cheering, and then we, and so in a very short amount of time, from going to get, uh, veggie dogs or whatever we're getting. Two weeks that we've talked about veggie dogs in a row. It's too many. They do have great veggie dogs, by the way, at City Field. Today's message is sponsored by the veggie dogs at City Field, believe it or not. Um, anyway, we find out later that the most home runs ever hit at City Field were hit that evening, and we completely missed it. And so Lincoln and I, and those of you who, others who were there, we know what it's like to miss out on something exciting. Anyway, Thomas, where was he? Who knows? But Thomas, even though he gets the message, hey, this has happened, he didn't have the advantage of instant replay like we did because I was like, it's impossible that the most home runs were ever hit at City Field and we were wandering around in the, the basement of City Field. But no, I went to instant replay and sure it, sure it was true. Thomas didn't have the advantage of instant replay and so he's just like, I am not going to believe this. He's very clear. I'm not going to believe it unless I see Jesus for myself. Now, what I think is really interesting about the story, there are many interesting things, is that Jesus does not show up right away to assuage uh, Thomas's fears and doubts. In fact, uh, Jesus lets Thomas wrestle with his doubts for an entire week, but we're told that the disciples the next week are again uh, together, and uh, Thomas is now with him, and Jesus does show up again. The doors are locked, there's no way in. They're afraid of the religious leaders. They don't know what's, what they're going to do. And so Thomas shows up, uh, or Jesus shows up again, and Thomas is there. And so they have this incredible meeting where Thomas gets to actually see and uh, touch Jesus. Now, while that's great for Thomas, what is most encouraging about this narrative, I think, is what Jesus uh, says to all of us. In fact, to, to anyone who... Uh, is a believer, embraces the work of God on their behalf, but doesn't have the opportunity to meet Jesus face-to-face, which is obviously most followers of Jesus. I mean, Jesus, yes, in his several weeks between his resurrection and his ascension, spent a lot of time seeing a lot of people. A lot of people had the opportunity to, to see Jesus, but all of those people, of course, died within 
60, 70 years or so. And so everybody after that, they only had, they had the opportunity to hear about Jesus, but didn't get to see him face to face. And so Jesus says these words to those people. Uh, he says to Thomas, you have seen me and believe that's great, but blessed are those uh, who have not seen me and yet have believed, even though they haven't seen me. And so I love this because it's just a little encouragement of Jesus, a thoughtfulness, uh, recognizing the challenge of not having seen Jesus face to face, the risen Jesus, and yet believing. Jesus is kind of acknowledging that challenge, the challenge that any of us today face. We will, we will not see Jesus face to face in our experience, at least until he comes again at the, his return. But, but for most of the people throughout the history of faith, they have not had the opportunity to see Jesus face to face and yet still believe. And so Jesus is just acknowledging both the challenge and, 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 and giving a word of encouragement to people who will not see him face to face, but yet uh, believe. Now, uh, this idea of believing without uh, seeing Jesus face to face is rooted in the whole idea of uh, faith, that uh, people are called to have a faith, that God does what he promises to do. And so for those of us who are experienced in religious belief, you know that this idea of faith or belief is very dynamic. Uh, it can grow and it can weaken. Sometimes you feel like you just, your belief, your faith is incredibly strong, and then certain things happen in your experience, and you're feeling a little bit weak in your, in your faith. And so there's a dynamic nature to belief or to faith. And I mean, I would suggest that this is not unlike other attributes of a relationship. You know, when you're in a relationship with, sometime, with someone, sometimes you can feel really connected and close with them, and sometimes due to circumstances or other things, you may just feel less uh, connected. And so in relationship, there's kind of a dynamic nature, and circumstances change things, and so this is certainly true of belief. Our belief. Some of you right now, I would imagine, are just feeling like off the charts in your belief. You just, things are you're feeling like things are going well, and you just feel really, really uh, uh, strong about your, your belief. And yet, I know that there are those of you here who right now just feel like you're barely holding on, or maybe not even holding on. In fact, you're not even sure why you're here today. You just know this is the, this is the time to come together in community, but the whole belief thing is really, really challenging for you. And this is, this is part of the nature, and it's why Jesus takes that moment to encourage people in our circumstances who don't get to see him face to face like Thomas did and the other disciples and yet will still believe. But it does, it does give us the opportunity to be thoughtful about the reasons why. Why is it that seeing uh, is such an important part for us of, of belief? Why, why do we have a hard time believing uh, without uh, seeing? Uh, what is it exactly about the relationship between belief and uh, seeing that Jesus had to call out and, and encourage? And I would, I, there are several attributes or aspects to the, the response to this question. So first I would say this, you know, why is it hard for us to believe without seeing? We have a very high opinion of our own good judgment. And therefore we trust in what we see. We want to see things because we believe that we are the, the, the most capable of really forming a judgment about things. And so if we are able to see it, 
uh, then we can determine whether something is true or not. So thus the old saying, seeing is believing. If I just see it, and so obviously this is Thomas's issue, right? He's like, look, that's great. I know you all are my friends. I've been hanging out with you for three and a half years, if not more. We know at least three and a half years they were basically living together. That's great that you think you saw him, but I am not going to believe until I see for myself. He had a high opinion of his own ability to determine and judge whether what he was seeing was real or not, whether seeing was true or not, and he was a little bit sketchy about what he was hearing from these people. So high opinion of our own judgment, our own good judgment is. So we feel like as human beings, we need to see for ourselves, and if we don't see for ourselves, we can't really be uh, sure about things. Now the irony here is that we don't always have great judgment. I mean, you know this. Sometimes you've seen things and made judgments about them and been, have been completely wrong. Um, and yet, and yet, we have, for the most part, a pretty high opinion of our own ability to determine uh, what is true and not by what we see. Secondly, we are challenged by this idea of believing even when we're not seeing because we are cynical of what others say, and therefore we want to see for ourselves. We are cynical of what we hear from others. Now, we live in the world's capital of cynicism. I mean, New York is the most cynical place on the planet. We love it, though, don't we? I mean, you come here and you tell us something, we're like, what, what are you talking about? We immediately, our first response is not like, oh, that's so interesting. It's, what are you trying to get out of me? Why, how are you lying to me? What, what are you doing to me? You know, that's why when the person is giving you something as you're going into the subway, they could be giving out $100 bills. I mean, can you and you'd be like, no, 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 no. Because we are innate, $100 bills, just, please, just take this. Take the, I'm not, are you grabbing that? You're not, because you don't take things when you go into the subway. You're cynical. That's what you do. $100 bills, you're not taking it. There's got to be a catch. I don't know what it is. That's something weird. It's green. It's got something on it. I'm not taking it. Are $100 bills green anymore? I don't even know. It's been a long time since I saw $100 bills. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, anyway, we are cynical and we live in the capital of cynicism. And so we, are, we, we distrust what we hear from other people. And so we feel like we've got to see it for myself because I can't be sure that what this person is saying is uh, true. The Stout family going to do a little traveling tomorrow. Excited. Going to Italy. Yes, going to eat some gelato, going to think of you, and they're going to eat some more gelato. Um, they're going to eat some pasta. I've heard the pasta over there is pretty good. I don't know. Anyway, first time. So someone heard, some of you have been giving us really great counsel on places to go in Italy, exciting. So someone told us, hey, there's a documentary that you should watch uh, about an art exhibit in Venice, and we're going to be in Venice, all right? So it's on Netflix, so we go on, and uh, we're watching this documentary, and it is unbelievable. So it's these archaeologists who, they, they go, they have identified a site where ancient uh, artifacts were spilled on the ocean floor off of North Africa. And so there's this 95-minute documentary, and there's, you know, they're down, the divers are down, and they're picking up these just incredible pieces of art. I mean, a gold head of Medusa. Just in, you know, with all the snakes and stuff. I mean, just giant, these giant statues. And so there's this whole story about 
you know, how this shipwreck ended here. And, and uh, so the documentary, by the way, you can watch it. It's called Treasures from the Wreck of the Unbelievable. The Unbelievable is the boat in which sank in all these treasures. Has anyone seen this documentary? So like a third of the way through, I'm, this is, you know, the kids are like, this is amazing. I'm blown by okay. So I'm like, I gotta, you could have never even heard of this before. I gotta, I, I, some, some of you have seen it, and you don't want to raise your hand. I get it. I get it. Just bear with me. So I'm like, I gotta, you know, I went to Google. Today's message is also sponsored by Google. So we, I went to Google, and I, I, and I typed in this, this story, completely fake. Totally made up. $65 million were invested in this film and this art project. So basically, it's an artist who's trying to revive his, his career, and he, he convinced a very wealthy uh, English or French uh, uh, supporter, benefactor, to give him funds to do this new art project. And it's a genius idea. So they create this documentary. I mean, it was incredible. You, you would have no idea that, that I've now spoiled it for everybody. I'm so sorry. Anyway, completely fake. The whole thing, all of the artifacts they put there in the ocean and now it, indeed were, were in an exhibit in Venice. Anyway, there's good reason to be cynical. When you, when you watch Netflix, when you talk to people, when somebody tries to give you in, is something in the subway, there is good reason to be a cynical. And so we are innately cynical, and it's only getting worse as time goes on because we're sketchy about what other people tell us. But this is challenging. This is challenging uh, to the idea that we would believe in something that we haven't seen. See, so again, Jesus, he knew what he was doing. He's encouraging because he knows the challenge of believing and yet not seeing. Cynicism. We have a high opinion of our ability to judge things, so we want to see things. We're afraid of, of, of being fooled. We're cynical. And so this challenges the idea of believing without seeing. Finally, finally, the, the, the challenge of believing without seeing is there because in our contemporary culture, we are encouraged to limit our belief to what we can prove. And we usually say, we, you know, we wouldn't prove things by things like, measures like the scientific mes uh, method. You know, the scientific method where you measure and you, 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 you take detailed notes and you try to determine if something is true or not by measuring it. And there's a whole a process. Some of you know, you know this all too well because you are in the midst of like doing a project that requires the scientific method. And listen, uh, proving things using the scientific met method is incredibly, incredibly important. And in fact, it should inform uh, a belief. If you believe that, you know, climate change, for example, isn't, isn't real, the scientific method can help you understand that indeed things are changing on the, on the planet, and we need to be aware of that. If you believe that the earth is, is flat, uh, thank you, scientific method. Also, thank you for the horizon. If you've ever actually looked at the earth, or if you've ever been in the plane, you can also see the earth is not flat, but that's a whole other story. Thank you, scientific method. We need it to be able to help us to be informed people who live on planet Earth. And we, we, by the way, sometimes Christians are maligned for being against science. Shame. Shame on us. We should be embraced that the first scientists were all believers because the two go, go together. But, but, but we can't be limited by what we can measure because if we limit by what, what, what we can measure, we're not going to actually know uh, that much because there's, 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 a lot of things that we just can't uh, measure. Uh, think about this. Uh, 
well, first of all, I mean, let's, let's be honest, like the idea of resurrection in the first place is pretty outlandish, and it's, it's quite frankly something that you can't measure. How are you going to how are you going to measure? How are you going to measure whether a God-man came, lived, died, and rose again? There's really no way to, 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 to measure that. I mean, it's, nobody's ever seen it before. It's never happened before, and it's not happened since. There's, there's really no good tool to use other than to say, I've never seen that before, so it, it certainly can't be real. Uh, but is that how it should work? Are we only able to believe in things that somebody has, has seen before? Again, that's the issue. We want to see and so this challenge of believing without seeing is very uh, real. Consider this, though, in this idea of like the ability to prove things and how, quite frankly, limited we are in what we know as human beings. This is, a, uh, this is just a, a, a quote from, uh, from NASA, nasa.gov, the website. It says this, in the early 1990s, one thing was certain among those who... Are, are evaluating cosmology. Uh, one thing was certain about the expansion of the universe. It might have enough energy density to stop its expansion and recollapse. It might have so little energy density that it would never stop expanding, but gravity was certain to slow the expansion as time went on. So there was, you know, there was some theory that everybody's, the universe is expanding, and but one idea was that the universe just like it started from something small and grew, that at some point uh, gravity would pull things back and we would go back, backwards. And then the other idea is that it's just going to continue to expand, but it's going to get slower. What they found using the Hubble Space Telescope in 1998 was that uh, the universe expansion actually is not slowing. It's, it's growing faster and faster. In fact, in April 25, an article was just released that now... Uh, they've discovered that the universe is expand, expanding 9% faster than even the fast people thought about how the universe is expanding, okay? So they really go, what, what is caused, how does this work? And so it causes them to kind of go reevaluate uh, Einstein's theory on gravity and w what's going on. And so the, the argument now is, look, 95% of the universe is made up of dark matter or dark en energy. And nobody knows what that is. You can go over to our, our uh, Natural History Museum just across the park, and there's a whole Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a whole uh, documentary on dark matter. And basically, the thing is 95% of the universe, nobody knows what it's made of. We can't see it. We can't identify it. We know that it has an effect on everything else and so that it exists. So we can only measure or see 5% of the universe. That means 95%. We know it exists, but we can't measure it. We can't see it. So if we're going to limit ourselves to only what we know or see, we're just going to be limited. And so the, the, the idea that we would only be able to believe things that we see is a challenge. Again, no wonder Jesus recognized this and encouraged us by saying, blessed are those who will believe even though they can't see. The truth is there is a lot in this universe that we just don't have a handle on. And the Bible's assertion is that we are only seeing a small bit. We are only aware of a small bit of what's really going on. There's a whole bigger thing going on, and we are invited into that bigger uh, thing. So with these forces pushing us against us to believe 
even though we don't see, what hope do we have? I mean, since we're, we're kind of innately cynical, since we have a high opinion of our own ability to judge things, and since we are continually told that we should only believe things that we can actually uh, measure or prove, what hope do we have to, to, to actually doing what Jesus invites us to do, and that is believe in the unseen? That seems like a, a pretty big task. Well, firstly, we can take hope in, in the fact that Jesus himself uh, believed in what he could not see. Well, we, we are told in Matthew chapter 24 that when Jesus was being crucified, that darkness came over all the land. Uh, some Bible students assert that this darkness was not just the physical darkness of the sun not shining, but that there was just this heavy a sense of, of, of confusion among the people, and maybe even uh, Jesus himself. And so in Matthew chapter uh, 24, 7 verse 45 we read that this darkness comes over all the land and about three in the afternoon very specific time wise by the way three in the afternoon jesus cried out in a loud voice eli eli lama sabachthani which means my god my god why hast thou uh, forsaken me now that sounds like a cry of just absolute despair and the implication is you know jesus was in this moment of just being overwhelmed by what was happening, and he is crying out in uh, despair. But, but uh, those who, who, who know a little bit about the Old Testament know that Jesus was not crying out in his despair. Yes, yes, he was at a moment where he could not see through the events that were going to happen, and that God, the, the Father, was shielded from him, and so he was also in darkness. He was having to believe without seeing, but we're told that when we recognize that in Psalm 22, uh, we have these very same words, which means that when Jesus is in his moment of despair, when he can't uh, see but yet is called to believe, he goes back to his memory verse that he learned in, in Sabbath school. You know, our, our kids, Margaret downstairs has the kids and the whole team, and they memorize passage of the, uh, of the Bible. Jesus did that too when he was a child. I mean, that's what you did if you were a Jewish kid in the first century. Your mom and your dad and your rabbi, they would all instruct you on memorizing the Bible. So Jesus, in his moment of darkness, when he cannot see and just has to believe, what he does is rely on his memory verse. And so he goes to Matthew or to Psalm 22, which starts, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is taking comfort in the word. He hasn't given up on God. He is believing even when he cannot see. By the way, we won't read it now, but Psalm 22, beautiful passage, it starts with this kind of cry of despair, but by the time you get to the end of Psalm 22, you see a triumphant message of the God of hope. And so Jesus is encouraging himself on the cross by quoting this favorite Bible verse. And so Jesus has done what is very hard for us. He believed even when he couldn't see. And that's good news. Jesus has done what's very difficult for us to do. But beyond that, the good news is also because Jesus did what he did. Because Jesus, in dying on the cross, because he's done that, we have hope that we will also have the capability to do things that we cannot do innately on our own. In John chapter 15, Jesus, talking about what's to come when he dies, says this. There's going to be an advocate who's, who comes. I will send you him from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will 
testify about me. He's not going to, by the way, show Jesus. He's going to testify about Jesus. So Jesus is saying, and this is all, this is all uh, engaged because Jesus dies on the cross. Because Jesus dies on the cross, the Spirit is now enabled. This is, by the way, in our text of emphasis, what Jesus said when he come to the, came to the disciples on the night of his resurrection. And he says, I now give you the Holy Spirit. Because he died, he has the capability of doing this. And so the idea is that the disciples are now empowered to do things that they are not able to do on their own because of Jesus' work through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to testify about me, Jesus said. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. He's talking to his, his disciples. And so there's good news. Yes, yes, we have a very high opinion of our own good judgment, and so we want to see things for ourselves, and we're cynical about other people, and we're told, hey, by our contemporary culture, only believe what you can uh, prove, and yet Jesus calls us into belief even though we don't see things, and so the good news is that Jesus himself has already done that. He believed even when he could not see. Because he did this, we are empowered through the work of the Holy Spirit, and so we have hope for a, a, a future where we too can believe even though we don't see. Now, I think this idea of believing without seeing that, that God is up to something in this. I would go as far to say that Jesus designed the Christian faith to be one that is passed on not through seeing, but through hearing. That there's an intentionality and in not Jesus just showing up to everyone, you know, every time we have a doubt about things. You know, you, or you, you know, you go into prayer. How many of you pray? If you would just, you know, show yourself to me. Uh, and then the hope is that, you know, Jesus is going to show up and be like, hey, I'm real. And, and then I'm out of here. And you're going to be like, oh, I saw Jesus and I now I'm a, a believer. That's not the way it works. I mean, actually, we only know a couple places in the Bible that that did happen. The Apostle Paul is one, by the way, uh, where he did have Jesus come visit him. But for most of us, that's not how it works. We don't get to see Jesus face to face. And I would suggest that there's strategy behind this. Listen to this. This is Rome. By this is Paul, who, by the way, did have Jesus appear to him. Um, but this is him writing in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Listen to what he says. He says, faith, faith, belief, faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. He doesn't say faith comes from seeing because Jesus already indicated very few people are actually going to see him face to face. Faith comes through hearing. Jesus, I would suggest to you, designed the Christian faith to be passed on through hearing, not seeing. Why? Why, Why would he do this? Listen to this. You know, some of us, we have this idea that spirituality and Christianity and religion is some kind of individual, uh, private thing, and we want to, we imagine ourselves like going off to like the most beautiful place that we can imagine and having this one-on-one -on -one experience with God, and he's just going to be transcendent to us, and he's going to reveal himself, and listen, that happens. I mean, I was on a mountain, mountain once, and I had like a spiritual experience of the Jesus didn't show up to me and be like, boom, I'm here, I'm real. But I mean, we have those, we have those experiences. But, but, but what Paul is telling us that, that faith is really developed in hearing. And I think the implication is God is, he, he's not encouraging a private religion. 
He's not, including, he's not encouraging a, a, an experience that is only rooted between us and God, that we go off into the hill country or the desert or the closet or whatever, and we have this one-on-one experience. In order to experience faith, Paul says it comes from hearing, and you have to hear from someone else, and so this implies community. So you have to exist in community to experience faith. God designed it this way. He could have just showed up to all of us, and then we could all have our little one-on-one experience with God, but God is like, no, no. Faith comes through hearing from other people. And it all starts with the disciples back in the first. He said, you, you, now you have seen me. And so your job is to go out and tell other people. That's how it works. I'm not going to show up to everybody. It's just not going to happen. In fact, I'm going to ascend, and it's you're going to be your work to tell other people. Because Why? Why? Community. God is calling us into community. Faith, the Christian faith, is not one that is able to be done alone. You have to be together in community. And hearing and telling is part of the journey. We have to hear it from other people, and we have to tell it to other people. That's how it works. That's how Jesus designed things. And what a great idea. I mean, we're not just in relationship with God. We're in relationship with each other, brothers and sisters in humanity. Who wants a religion that's just between you and God? How selfish is that? How private is that? God is calling us into community with each other. Faith comes from hearing the word about Christ. And we hear about the word of Christ from other people. Brilliant. For the believer in Jesus, faith comes from a communal experience together. Therefore, you, you, you can't, I mean, listen, you can have your private moments, but it's got to end up back in the community. This is part of the reason that we come together in community. This is part of the reason that we worship together. This is part of the reason that we have community groups together. It's part of the reason that there's a prayer gathering that's going to meet right here afterwards together, where they, by the way, don't just pray together. They talk about their joys and their fears and their hopes and their dreams, and that's, that's how faith is developed. I mean, I see Helen back there. She's doing a great job ushering. Thank you, Helen, for doing that. In just a few weeks, we're going to have an afternoon program, right? We're going to share the journey of of, of faith together, and we're going to hear other people talk about their faith journey, and we're going we're gonna to listen to that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to confess to you, I'm going to be in Italy. I'm not going to hear it. But a lot of you are going to hear it when you come to, to the, the prayer groups uh, time together in the afternoon, and that's what it's about, community, living in community, and faith building in community. God is instructing us, this is not a private thing. We live together. No, no wonder, by the way, Paul again says in Hebrews, don't, don't give up meeting together. That's Hebrews chapter 10. Don't give up meeting together because Paul is so concerned that if you give up meeting together and you start thinking about your religious experience as a private thing, you're going to lose the whole thing because it just doesn't work that way. The Ten Commandments were designed to be about our relationship, yes, with God, but also with each other. The Sabbath commandment, number four, is designed. The first three, about our relationship with God. Last six, about our relationship with each other. The Sabbath commandment, which we love near and dear to our hearts here at Avent Hope, about living together with God and each other in community. God. Jesus knew what he was doing. He doesn't just show up to each other. He invites us to be a part of the process so that we learn and teach together verbally the communication of the word of Jesus. No wonder uh, God, when he describes Jesus in John chapters 1, says he's the word. 
He's the word. It doesn't say he was the vision. He doesn't say he was, he was the picture. It says he was the word. Jesus is the word. God inviting us into a relationship with him and with each other that is rooted in a verbal testimony. He's not going to pop up and show himself to everyone. It's also, again, why here in our worship time together, we're trying to be very intentional. I just, just confess a little bit, good, a little insider of how the sausage is made. Sausage, veggie sausage. We're so on to the veggie thing. If you're not Adventist and you keep hearing us talk about the veggie, I'm, just come to me afterwards. We'll explain the whole thing. It's a little funny. Anyway, veggie, sausage, any sausage. So we're going to go behind the scenes, see how the veggie sausage is made. We try to be very intentional when we come together here to worship, to talk primarily, primarily about one thing. Listen, sometimes some of you or other people come and say, hey, I want to preach, or would you preach about this thing? Will you preach about, uh, you know, what's happening in, you know, in, 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 in politics? Will you preach about, you know, how we should eat more healthfully? Will you preach about this? And, and all of those things have a place to be talked about in the church community. But when we come to worship, we have to understand what we're coming to, to worship. We have to remember, by the way, the very words of Paul. Paul says this about coming together and worshiping together and what followers of Jesus need to be talking about. He said, religious leaders demand miraculous signs. And the secular look for wisdom. Well, how do I do this? How do I do this? But the followers of Jesus preach Christ crucified. See, that's the primacy of our message. That's what Jesus is concerned with. Hey, share this message that I have come back, that I am alive again. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to religious leaders, foolishness to non-believers, but to those whom God has called both religious leaders and the secular, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul's very clear, listen, Christians need to be about one thing, the resurrected Savior. I mean, that is the, when we come together, we come together not to worship our own awesomeness or our own, you know, ideas about how the world works. We come together to, to worship a, a, a God who has done in Jesus what we could not do for ourselves, a God who sacrificed himself for us, and we come together to worship a risen Savior. That's why we're here. Believing without seeing is innately difficult. But Jesus has already done it. And because he's done it, he has given us access to power through the Holy Spirit so that we can be transformed and we can be filled with faith. Faith doesn't come from ourselves, by the way. You're not going to be able to stir up faith in yourself on your own. The only thing really you can do is invite God to do his work in your experience. And if you do that, the promise is God is able to give you faith, and then you will be able to believe even though you don't see. It's a challenge. I mean, there are many who have come before us who didn't have the opportunity to ever have their faith Revealed In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul tells us about some of the great characters of faith. And he says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They actually never saw. The greatest, the greatest person of, of faith, Abraham, who 
three of the world's religions are rude as their, their father. He never, ever, his faith was really never fulfilled. He never got to see the one who was going to be his savior. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on planet Earth. God is calling us to do something innately difficult. To believe without seeing. But fortunately, he's given us a great verbal message. That in Jesus, we have hope for a new future. And that God can strengthen us and give us faith that we do not have on our own. And so as we continue in this season of the celebration of the resurrected Jesus, may we be a community that both teaches and learns of the work of the risen Lord. May God soften our hearts that we can grow in faith that comes from him. Amen.